Howdy, friends, and welcome to the Old Hat Podcast. This is James Chambliss, your host, also known as Old Hat, here at the Old Hat Podcast. This is episode 14 of the Old Hat Podcast, which, if you remember last episode, if you were superstitious, then this would actually be episode 13, or episode 15, if last one was 14. But this one is 14, the last one was 13, so hopefully the next one will be 15. I'm rambling, y'all. Sorry, I just ran up the stairs, so I'm a little out of breath. Do you do that thing where you run up the stairs and then you kind of hold your breath so nobody knows you're gasping and trying not to die? Because I do that sometimes. (laughs) Welcome to episode 14. This program is brought to you by coffee. This time with my bride. Always lovely to sit out by the waterfall with my lovely bride and sip coffee in the morning. It's also brought to you by Hokey Pokey. The Hokey Pokey with my grandchildren. And so therefore it also has to be brought to you by ibuprofen and a purely hypothetical nap been teaching my grandchildren to do the hokey pokey this summer so of course they laugh about put your backside in well i do too so that kind of works out <laughs> y'all pray for my grandchildren they have to watch me do the hokey pokey uh, who knows what we'll teach them next though we're learning a lot of stuff around here in the summertime yep my grandchildren are spending a lot of their summer here and spoiling grandchildren is hard work friends you have to really really work at spoiling your grandkids because who else will right? I mean, nobody else is going to give your grandchild two pounds of chocolate if you don't. And no, grandmommy won't let me give them that much chocolate. (laughs) And they don't like coffee yet. So I don't know. You know, they have had a few donuts uh, and there have been a lot of Rice Krispie cookies and uh, a lot of dancing the hokey pokey. And maybe we'll tackle the Cupid Shuffle. Who knows? That would be a lot of fun for them to learn. But you know, it's supposed to be fun. Did you spend... uh, summertime at your grandparents' house growing up? Or do you now, if you're not grown up? I'm not sure I'm grown up yet. Maybe I'm childish instead of childlike. (laughs) But I did spend a lot of time at my grandmother's house uh, in the summertime. Grandma was what we called her. And uh, Grandma taught me to crochet, which may be why I spent so much time outside when I was at her house. (laughs) Well, I say taught me to crochet. That's really taking it a little high. I could crochet in a straight line, but if I needed to turn the corner and go back, why... I'd have to go ask for help. I didn't know how to turn backwards and, and, and knit back on itself, crochet back on itself. So I ended up with like a 14-foot long straight line of crochet work, which is not entirely helpful, I will admit. But, you know, anything you can do to keep little boys busy and, and keep their hands occupied, y'all, that's good thinking. That's time well spent right there. My grandma rewarded us with cowboy pies. I don't know if you've ever had a cowboy pie, and you might get diabetes just listening to the description, but... A cowboy pie is when you take peanut butter and light K-Row syrup and mix them together until they're a real big gooey mess and put it between two pieces of white bread and mash the edges down. That is a cowboy pie, and we thought that was the greatest treat ever. And of course, back then, we washed it down with water from the garden hose out in the yard, which may be illegal where you live now. I don't know, but that's how we grew up. My lovely bride spent a lot of time with her grandparents, and uh, the more I've listened to what she said about it over the years, and I decided that it really was Southern Bell Training School that she was attending in the summers, because she comes from a long line of Southern Bells, and she all won herself. And uh, that involved a lot of being spoiled by her grandparents, of course, but also her great aunt and uncle and other people that were gathered around the little town that they're from. And... uh, A lot of her time was spent dressed in a pretty dress and squired about town, and her great aunt would take her to the big 
department store where they had a, a lunch counter where everyone could come by and speak to the little princess. And <laughs> everybody in that town was happy when she came for the summer, I think. And I understand that. But I thought I got spoiled until I heard about her. And then I thought pretty much she was spoiled. But I have to tell you, the most spoiling thing I've ever heard a grandparent do was for my friend Richard. Richard was a neighbor of mine when we were boys and a good friend then and a good friend now. And he, uh, he'd he go spend a little bit of summertime with his grandparents. And, and one night he couldn't sleep because the locusts in the front yard trees were too loud. And I know a lot of people call them cicadas, but we're country folk. We called them locusts. But he couldn't sleep because they were so loud. Well, you know, if my grandkids said, look, I can't sleep because the locusts are too loud, I'd have said, well, let me go get you a rock and I'll rock you to sleep. <laughs> Which is a line heard around here from time to time. But nope, not Richard's grandmother. She went out front. She said, okay, baby, I'll take care of it. And she went out front and walked around her front yard tapping trees with sticks to get the locusts to hush because they will startle and be quiet for a while. <laughs> Y'all hushing cicadas beats all I've ever heard of though in the in the grandparent spoiling line. That's that's pretty powerful stuff right there. <laughs> but I'll give you grandpa's perspective about all that. It's really not just about spoiling, it's about giving them a safe place to be. A fun place too. I mean, where else can you go and pick tomatoes and eat them and where else can you go and pick flowers and bring them into grandmommy and you know, usually if you pick flowers out of the garden, you might get in trouble for that. Hey, hey, hey. That was growing fine, leave it alone. But at my house, no, take a flower. They're pretty. That's what they're for. She'll love it. Take one to your mom. She'll love it. It's also a more relaxed environment for them because there are fewer responsibilities. You know, there's fewer expectations. You don't, you know, gosh, I don't think we ever get on to our grandchildren to clean up this room or anything like that. We make a game out of it. But if, you know, I don't think they ever leave it looking like a tornado struck. Because uh, they clean up. That's just as much fun as the playing. We sing the cleanup song. You don't know the cleanup song? Really? It's from Barney, the big purple dinosaur. You remember that guy? And he used to sing, clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere. Clean up, clean up, everybody do your share. And I'm going to stop there because you don't pay me to sing for sure. <laughs> That's why. Now you know why I talk instead of sing a whole lot on this thing. Well, that and I change the words a lot. So... Grandmommy might get upset if I say that's all of the verses that I have made up to the world. That might not be a good thing. But then again, it might. You just never know. But, you know, the point is they just don't, you know, there's not a lot of expectations here. Just be you and have fun. The main focus is just loving on them, giving them love and receiving love from them and just letting them know that this is a great place to be and that we're happy to see them and that we're proud of them and just have a good time here at Grandmommy's house. That's what we do. Here in the summertime, uh, along with uh, with a lot of playing and a lot of eating, trying to eat a lot of chocolate if grandmommy's like not looking, right? <laughs> and doing the hokey pokey and maybe the Cupid shuffle. Stay tuned. But you know, children are always learning, right? I mean, whether you want them to be learning what you're teaching them or not, they're always learning. They're always paying attention. And we're kind of focused on that. We're, we're a little more intentional about a lot of things. But one of the things we're intentional about the grandchildren is whenever they're with us, they're learning something. And one of the things we try really hard to teach our children and now our grandchildren is how to make decisions. And it starts with easy stuff, right? I mean, it sounds like a, a big deal to them at the time, but it's really easy stuff. And it's things like, do you want milk or juice? You know, are you thirsty? Yes or no? 
do you want milk or juice? And you have to pick. And that's a decision. Well, here we have uh, grape juice and milk chocolate. Well, which do you pick? Chocolate milk or, or juice? Y'all, that's complicated when you're three years old. Well, it's complicated when you're four years old. When you're three years old, you either you have one of two speeds. You either pick exactly what your big brother picked or you pick nothing that your big brother picked. And that's kind of what our days are like around here in the decision-making process. But, you know, we're also helping them build confidence in their decision-making. So do you want milk or juice? Well, I want milk. That is a great choice. That's just a simple way of saying, well, well you made a good decision. I'm proud of you. Well done. And the other thing we're teaching them is acceptance. Because when I think you ought to have milk, but you have apple juice instead, well then, okay, I accept your decision. You have the right to make that decision. And y'all, we don't talk about it that way with them, but but really that's what you're doing. You're teaching them how to make decisions and you're giving them confidence that they can make decisions, which is a great gift. And then you're accepting their decision. Don't you wish people would do that more when you were a grown up? That would be fantastic. And since I decided it would be fantastic, I decided there were some things I wanted to tell you about decision making. And you're not my grandchild and I'm not your grandpa, but if you'll let me step in those shoes for just a minute, I'm going to tell you a few things about decision making that I think you ought to know. All that milk or juice, man, that was just practice. That was training. And whoever raised you, if they ever ask you, do you want milk or juice, was doing the best they could maybe uh, to uh to teach you how to make decisions, to give you some freedom to make decisions. And that's great when you're a kid. When you're little, you really want the freedom to do what you want to do, especially in an environment where there's not a lot of requirements, not a lot of responsibilities, not a lot of expectations. You love that freedom. Of course, then you grow up and you've got all of those responsibilities. I mean, there's a lot riding on you and your decision-making process. And what do you want when you get to that point? Somebody just to tell you what the best decision is. <laughs> and I get that, but you know what? It's you. You're the one that gets to make these decisions. And so I thought I'd give you a little bit of advice about uh, maybe a few things that might help you make better decisions and give you confidence in them and, and help you to accept the decisions that you've made. So the first thing I'd tell you is to seek wise counsel. That's in the Bible, right? A multitude of counselors makes for good decisions. That's the just James version, not the King James version, in case you haven't figured out that I wildly paraphrase things in here. But you can seek wise counsel both from the living and the dead. You know, I'm alive. You can ask me questions. And I get a lot of questions and I get a lot of uh, people looking for an opinion. And they sometimes people take your advice and sometimes they don't. And you know what? That's okay. But asking is a wise thing to do, but you still get to make the decision. And when I say you can ask dead people, uh, I, <laughs> in 1994, y'all, I worked at a job I absolutely hated, but I needed it. It solved a couple of really big problems for me because I like living indoors and eating regular. And it solved both of those problems for me. But it was hours and hours of monotony on a regular basis. And it was a lot of hours. So I was there a lot. And sometimes there was just nothing to do. And one day I was reading a magazine and they didn't even care. That's how it, that's what kind of job it was. Maybe you've got one of those. Hang in there if you do. Because you can learn things at jobs like that, just like I did. I was reading a magazine and there was, I don't know, it wasn't an article, it was just a blurb, like a Reader's Digest kind of thing, I guess. And it was a quote from a guy named Benjamin Disraeli, who I had never heard of. 
And the quote was, despair is the conclusion of fools. And I don't know about you, but when I was in school, there were one or two words that were guaranteed to make me fighting mad. And one of those things was to call me a fool. I just wasn't going to have that. And I would start crying and swinging. I just that's That was my childhood right there. I hated to be called a fool by anybody for any reason. But I was sitting there in 1994 going, okay, if despair is the conclusion of fools, and honestly, I'm sitting here thinking about throwing in the towel. I've lost the best job I've ever had. I'm at the worst job I've ever had. I was living in the one place I wanted to be, and now I'm living in the place I don't want to be. And I was just really, really done in. I was not happy with my lot in life and was thinking about throwing in the towel, just giving up, you know, go live on a Go live on a state park somewhere. Go camping. I don't know. Canoe off into the sunset, maybe. But I was just tired of this grown-up mess. It wasn't working out for me. But, you know, if despair was the conclusion of fools, and I chose despair, that meant I was calling me a fool. I won't have that. And it made me fighting mad. And, you know, that's not a bad thing to do sometimes. Sometimes you find yourself in a situation and you get so depressed, but really what you need is to get you back up. I'd rather see you angry and fighting against this state of mind than just giving into it because despair is the conclusions of fools. But, you know, Benjamin Disraeli had been dead for a couple hundred years by the time I read that. Like, oh, you know what? There are a lot of smart people that wrote stuff down that have been dead for a long, long time. I get a lot of wisdom out of the Bible, a lot of good stuff in there. And it, you know, old. I was reading the book of Jonah this week, and that was uh, written in 800 B.C. That was a long time ago, y'all. Whatever your beliefs are, reading something that has survived that long, there's usually some wisdom in there. So you can ask advice from smart people, whether they're alive or dead. Some of the best advice I've gotten in my life came from a, a living flight nurse. Back in the middle 80s, I guess, I was going to EMT school Back in the firefighter days, I was uh, working on the fire department, but they wanted everybody to be cross-trained, and so I got my EMT training from a place that had a helicopter that they flew around and picked up sick people, hurt people. That's real common now. It was really uncommon then. But this little bitty flight nurse was one of our instructors, and I remember, you know, of course, you're at the fire department, so you're seeing a lot of stuff on a regular basis anyway, and I remember thinking, man, I'm not going to know what to do. And I told her the things I was worried about. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, you know what? You've had a lot of training, whether you realize it or not. We've trained you in every way that you need. This is the part I want you to remember, guys. She said, you know more than you think you do. All you have to do is think it through and do the next right thing. Y'all, I have been leaning on that my whole life. You know more than you think you do. Think it through. And then do the next right thing. That is some great advice. I have been leaning on that for a long time. Another thing I've learned in a lifetime of making hard decisions is that the right thing and the hard thing are usually the same thing. If you come up with an answer to your complicated problem and it's really simple and easy, that may not be the solution you were looking for. Because a lot of times you'll have options and you go, well, I'm going to take the easy way out. And I understand wanting to do that. But I have to tell you, it just leads to more troubles later, usually. You're just kicking the can down the road a little bit. And if you want examples of that, all you ever have to do is look at Congress. That hasn't changed in a couple of years now. Well, we'll worry about that later, they say, and kick that can down the road. Don't do that. You know, the right thing and the hard thing are usually the same thing. So if your solution is too easy, you need to think carefully about it. Be careful with that kind of thing. It'll get you in trouble. 
And the other piece of advice I have for you is a lot of times in life you have several options and they all seem okay. They seem acceptable. They seem like good options even sometimes. And you don't know which to pick, you know, and sometimes it's should I move to city A or city B? You can get a job in both. You can get a house in both. They both seem okay. Or maybe it's should I take job A or job B? Same thing. They both seem like good jobs. They both seem like they're going to help us pay the bills or whatever. Should my kid go to school A or school B? Y'all, this kind of stuff comes up a lot more often than you even think about where you have to choose between two or three good things or acceptable things. Well, this next piece of advice has helped me make a ton of those decisions and really gave me a lot of confidence with it. So I'm going to pass it on to you. If you have to choose between several options and they all seem like acceptable choices, the choice that requires the most faith will contain the most blessings. That's a lot like the right thing and the hard thing usually being the same thing. Y'all, the thing that takes the most faith, the thing that really is stepping out there, the thing that is the scariest will contain the most blessings. That's where you're going to grow the most. That's where you're going to think the hardest and move the fastest. And so that has worked out for me a lot in my life, and I hope it does for you. I'm going to share that with you as well. But, you know, I'm also going to give you a warning that, that is just life. You can make the right decision for all of the right and true and honorable reasons. Things can still go badly for you. That's just the truth. That's just how life works sometimes. That's why people are always saying life's not fair, you know, because you can, I did all the right things and this bad thing happened. You know what? That happens sometimes. And, and you know what happens then? You have more decisions to make. That's just how it works. I can give you an example of the uh, doing the right thing uh, for the right reasons, but uh, getting in trouble for it. When I was a fireman uh, in a little, little country town and uh, one night uh, the, the fire phone rang. This was before 9-11. If you can imagine such thing, there was no 911 system to call. You just called the fire station or you called the police station or you called the, And you had to know where you lived because you had to know which fire department would come to your house and which police department would come to your house. And sometimes you needed the county fire department. And if you called a city fire department when you needed the county fire department, your house was going to burn down while you were waiting for them to sort out whose turn it was to call you and put your fire out. Well, the shift I was on at the time, the lieutenant uh, had been in the Air Force where he worked in the crash tower, and he slept by the fire phone, and, and one, late one night, the fire phone rang, and it's loud, y'all. It's so loud. You're not sleeping through it. And he rolls out of bed, and he grabs the phone, and he yells, crash, which can't really be comforting to whoever's needing help. But anyway, uh, it turns out there was a fire and a policeman had called it in. One of the police units had just been cruising around and, and looking at things. And he saw a fire in a barn and um, and, it, you know, he could see flames coming out the top and told us where it was. And so we all, you know, we all roll out of the rack and grab our bunker gear and jump on trucks. And the first truck is gone and I'm on the back of the second truck. I've told you I wasn't a very good fireman. I'm on the back, the tailboard of the second truck. And we're about halfway there when the first truck calls, the lieutenant calls and tells us to disregard the, the fire truck, 640 disregard, and then calls for the ambulance to come. Well, the guys that are going to be in the ambulance are on the fire truck. That's it. Everybody's gone. There's nobody at the station. So we leave the lights and sirens on and scream back to the fire station and get the ambulance and turn those lights and sirens on and scream over to the barn that's on fire. And again, you know, I know something about being in the ambulance. They let me be in charge of the ambulance, but on the fire truck, I had to ride on the tailboard. Well, we get there 
And this policeman, y'all, he made good decisions for the right reasons. Uh, He got there and the barn was on fire and he called for help immediately. But inside the barn, he could hear all of the animals, horses, cows. I don't know what all was in there, just kicking and trying to get out of them. They're about to burn to death. And so he makes the right decision. I'm going to save these animals. But then he opened the door while standing right in front of it. Yep, and you guessed it. Everything in that barn but the tractor ran over that poor man. <laughs> and I shouldn't laugh about it, but he was okay. Let me just be quick to add that. But, but he did get, he got stomped and kicked and bit and cut and run over by just about every animal you can imagine that walks on the earth that came out of there. Looked like he'd been run over by the ark, and he assured us he felt like it too. All the contents of the ark had walked right over him. And, you know, he did the right thing and he did it for the right reason, but he did it in the wrong way. And I don't know how he didn't know that. I mean, back then, almost everybody had a bit of country living in their past at some point, but he was pure city boy. He must have come from somewhere else. And the little town we were in didn't even have a high school. I had to go uh, it's about a 45 minute bus ride to get to the high school that I went to in another town. And y'all, it was a town of 30,000 people. But if all 30,000 people are hicks, it's still a hick town. So I don't know how he didn't know not to stand in front of the door of a burning building to let out the cows. Uh, but he, he did the right thing. He did it in the wrong way. And that's something you need to think about with your decision making, too. There's a wrong way to do the right thing. But of course, last piece of advice, you need to be careful and not learn the wrong lesson from that kind of decision. You know, if that policeman had decided, well, all right, well, that hurt. I'm never going to make that decision again. I'm just, if I come on a burning barn, I'm just going to let all the animals die inside. That's, that's learning the wrong lesson, right? What should he do? Well, you want to be careful when you open the door so that you can't get run over. You want to do that remotely. You want to do that and jump out of the way. You need to be thinking about that. I think the, the funniest thing I've ever heard about learning the wrong lesson was Mark Twain talking about his cat, one of his cats. Uh, he had a cat that liked to jump up on the on the wood stove when it was cold, of course. Well, one night he jumped up on the wood stove when it was hot. And of course, he jumped right off. But Mark Twain said that cat never jumped on a hot wood stove again. But you know what? He never jumped on a cold stove either. That cat learned the wrong lesson. What he should have learned was, hey, if it's hot, don't jump on it. But if it's cold, it's still a pretty good place to watch the world from. Get a belly rub. That's what cats really want. Well, or to bite people that give them belly rubs. I don't really know what cats want. Do you know what cats want? Because I can't figure them out. But don't be like Mark Twain's cat. Don't learn the wrong lessons from your decision-making process. And I hope some of that helps you because you've got a lot of decisions to make. You've got a lot riding on you. I know that. You've got a lot of responsibilities and a lot of people depend on you. And you have to make these hard decisions. And I have to tell you a couple things about that. There's an old cowboy down in Texas praying for you as you decide what to do next. I really think that is a good thing to do. I do a lot of it, and and I'm doing some of that for you today. I trust you with these decisions. You know, there's a world population clock. There's like 7.6 billion people on this planet. And there's nobody I would trust more to make the right decisions in your life than you. You can do this. This is the right thing for you to be doing is making these decisions for yourself. And I trust you with this. And I really do believe that you keep making those decisions and the best is yet to come. This is Old Hat signing off for the Old Hat Podcast. Thanks for listening.